In his book, The Bridges at Tokori, novelist James Michener writes movingly of the heroes who fought in the Korean conflict. In the book's final scene, an admiral stands on the darkened bridge of his carrier waiting for pilots he knows will never return from their mission. And as he waits, he asks in the silent darkness, where did we get such men? Almost a generation later, I asked that same question when our POWs were returned from savage captivity in Vietnam. Where did we find such men? We find them where we've always found them, in our villages and towns, on our city streets, in our shops and on our farms. I have one more Vietnam story, and the individual in this story was brought up on a farm outside of Cureo in DeWitt County, Texas, and he is here today. Thanks to the Secretary of Defense, Cap Weinberger, I learned of his story, which had been overlooked or buried for several years. It has to do with the highest award our nation can give, the Congressional Medal of Honor given only for service above and beyond the call of duty. Secretary Weinberger, would you please escort Sergeant Benavides, Benavides forward. Ladies and gentlemen, we're honored to have with us today Master Sergeant Roy P. Benavides, U.S. Army, retired. Let me read the plain, factual, military language of the citation that was lost for too long a time. Master Sergeant Roy P. Benavides, United States Army, retired for conspicuous gallantry and intrepidity in action at the risk of his life above and beyond the call of duty. Where there is a brave man, it is said, there is the thickest of the fight. There is the place of honor. On May 2nd, 1968, Master Sergeant, then Staff Sergeant Roy P. Benavides, distinguished himself by a series of daring and extremely valorous actions while assigned to Detachment B-56 5th Special Forces Group Airborne, 1st Special Forces Republic of Vietnam. On the morning of May 2nd, 1968, a 12-man Special Forces Reconnaissance Team was inserted by helicopters in a dense jungle area west of Lac Ninh, Vietnam, to gather intelligence information about confirmed large-scale enemy activity. This area was controlled and routinely patrolled by the North Vietnamese Army. After a short period of time on the ground, the team met heavy enemy resistance and requested emergency extraction. Three helicopters attempted extraction but were unable to land due to intense enemy small arms and anti-aircraft fire. Sergeant Bienavides Vitas was at the forward operating base in Lac Ninh monitoring the operation by radio when these helicopters returned to offload wounded crew members and to assess aircraft damage. Sergeant Benavides voluntarily boarded a returning aircraft to assist in another extraction attempt. Realizing that all the team members were either dead or wounded and unable to move to the pickup zone, he directed the aircraft to a nearby clearing where he jumped from the hovering helicopter and ran approximately 75 meters under withering small arms fire to the crippled team. Prior to reaching the team's position, he was wounded in his right leg, face, and head. Despite these painful injuries, he took charge, repositioning the team members and directing their fire to facilitate the landing of an extraction aircraft and the loading of wounded and dead team members. He then threw smoke canisters to direct the aircraft to the team's position. Despite his severe wounds and under intense enemy fire, he carried and dragged half of the wounded team members to the awaiting aircraft. 
He then provided protective fire by running alongside the aircraft as it moved to pick up the remaining team members. As the enemy's fire intensified, he hurried to recover the body and the classified documents on the dead team leader. When he reached the team leader's body, Sergeant Benavides was severely wounded by small arms fire in the abdomen and grenade fragments in his back. At nearly the same moment, the aircraft pilot was mortally wounded and his helicopter crashed. Although in extremely critical condition due to his multiple wounds, Sergeant Benavides secured the classified documents and made his way back to the wreckage where he aided the wounded out of the overturned aircraft and gathered the stunned survivors into a defensive perimeter. Under increasing enemy automatic weapons and grenade fire, he moved around the perimeter, distributing water and ammunition to his weary men, reinstilling in them a will to live and fight. Facing a buildup of enemy opposition with a beleaguered team, Sergeant Benavides mustered his strength and began calling in tactical airstrikes and directing the fire from supporting gunships to suppress the enemy's fire and so permit another extraction attempt. He was wounded again in his thigh by small arms fire while administering first aid to a wounded team member just before another extraction helicopter was able to land. His indomitable spirit kept him going as he began to carry his comrades to the craft. On his second trip with the wounded, he was clubbed from behind by an enemy soldier. In the ensuing hand-to-hand -hand combat, he sustained additional wounds to his head and arms before killing his adversary. He then continued under devastating fire to carry the wounded to the helicopter. Upon reaching the aircraft, he spotted and killed two enemy soldiers who were rushing the craft from an angle that prevented the aircraft door gunner from firing upon them. With little strength remaining, he made one last trip to the perimeter to ensure that all classified material had been collected or destroyed and to bring in the remaining wounded. Only then, in serious condition from numerous wounds and loss of blood, did he allow himself to be pulled into the extraction aircraft. Sergeant Benavides' gallant choice to join voluntarily his comrades who were in critical straits, to expose himself constantly to withering enemy fire, and his refusal to be stopped despite numerous severe wounds saved the lives of at least eight men. His fearless personal leadership, tenacious devotion to duty, and extremely valorous actions in the face of overwhelming odds were in keeping with the finest traditions of the military service and reflect the utmost credit on him and the United States Army. Sergeant Benedictus, a nation grateful to you and to all your comrades living and dead, awards you its highest symbol of gratitude. For service above and beyond, the call of duty, the Congressional Medal of Honor. matter of facts welcome to the global recon podcast i'm your host john Hendricks. we have a great episode for you guys uh my good friend uh mike stall is back on the podcast and mike is a first generation uh special forces green beret he served in vietnam uh on an a team on his first rotation and then on the second rotation he was a he became a team leader for mac v sog 
uh, running recon with Command and Control North. And um, the reason that I, I wanted to have Mike on is for the previous episode, I had Brian Myers and Lawrence Schofield on two uh, modern day Green Berets who served in Iraq and Afghanistan. And they have created this campaign called Raise the Black, where they are raising money and funds to donate to the uh, widows and families of the Iraqi Special Operations Forces, which the Army Green Berets helped stood up, uh, helped stand up in the early days of the Iraq War. Who went on, and this, this unit, the Iraqi Special Operations Forces, and, and specifically the Iraqi Counterterrorism Forces, which falls under that umbrella, went on hundreds of raids, if not thousands of raids, with uh, Army Special Operations troops into some of the worst places uh, during the height of the Iraq War. And then shortly after the U.S. pulled out with the war in Syria spilling over into Iraq, and then ISIS swept through a large percentage of the country, uh, the Iraqi Special Operations Forces stood their ground and really were the reason that ISIS didn't take Baghdad. And these guys have been fighting nonstop for 10 years straight. And uh, what Lauren and Brian are doing is, is really incredible. And these guys are currently leading the fight against ISIS uh, as we speak. And I think it's really important that they're doing what they're doing. But the reason I wanted to have Mike on is because there's so many uh, similarities and kind of connections between the Green Berets who served in Vietnam, the first generation Green Berets, and the Green Berets of today's uh, global war on terror. And you'll you'll hear it in the podcast how they are very similar. They are of a similar mind, and one of the things Brian said is when he was going through uh, the Special Forces Selection Course. They were reading, you know, the manuals that were written by the guys from Mike's generation, how they handled things. And that was how they studied some of their, uh, you know, unconventional warfare and that sort of thing. So it's just really interesting. And uh, Mike, his uh, his official designation was in 11 Fox. And that was a he was an Intel guy. And it wasn't until the 1980s that the 18 series was designated to special forces. And so Brian also happens to be uh, an Intel guy. But with today's uh, designation for special forces, his designation would be an 18 Fox. Same job, just a different title. So, yeah, I think you guys are going to enjoy this episode. Uh, Check it out. Here's my conversation with Mike Stahl a Green Beret who served in Vietnam, and Brian Myers, a Green Beret who served in the global war on terror. Welcome to the Global Recon Podcast. I'm your host, John Hendricks. Uh, We have a very special guest back on the podcast. Uh, He was on for a few episodes early on, and and now he's back on. His name is Mike Stahl. Uh, Mike, what's up, brother? Hey, John. Good to to talk with you again. Yeah, man. It's great having you back on. And, And back on from... I guess who was on last week's podcast is, is Brian Myers. Brian, what's up, bro? How you doing, brother? Thanks for having me back on. And Mike, pleasure to meet you, brother. You too, Brian. All right. So 
you know, uh, Brian, we had you on last week. We were talking about what you and Lawrence Schofield are doing with the Raise the Black campaign. And I remember we were talking offline about it before we went live. And, you know, as we were talking about it, the first thing that came to my mind was actually Mike Stahl, because Mike Stahl was a Green Beret who served in Vietnam. And anyone who knows anything about the Army Special Operations history, specifically the Green Berets, they would know that the Green Berets in Vietnam built really strong connections and bonds to the mountain yards, which were the local uh, warriors that they worked with in fighting against the North Vietnamese and the Viet Cong. And I remember once I told you that, you said, yeah, a few guys have already said that to me. And um, and I remember thinking, damn, it would have been great if we could have had Mike Stahl on for this episode, but now we, we're on now. So um, I think it'll be an interesting conversation. So Mike, before we, we get into kind of uh, pointing out some of the similarities. Can you just give a brief, uh, you know, a couple of seconds of your background and your experiences? Uh, yeah, I got into special forces after uh, uh, going through Arabic language training. I was recruited and I spent uh, the first part of my tour in Vietnam right after, of course, getting my beret on an A-team uh, where we worked primarily with uh, Vietnamese and uh, working through the Vietnamese Special Forces, the Luc Long Duc Biet. Uh, and then uh, the second part of that tour, I worked as the company Civil Affairs NCO, and I was responsible pretty much for keeping all the refugees up in I-Corps fed, so uh, working closely with the people there. Uh, then when I went back to Vietnam, my second tour, that's when I worked closely with Mountain Yards running recon and uh, uh built that bond uh, with, with the Mountain Yard group, which, of course, is a subset of, of the, the people we worked with. Okay, and Mike, what was your specialty uh, as a Green Beret? Uh, I was trained as, a, as an 11F back then, uh, you know, first-generation special forces. Uh, I was an operations and intelligence sergeant. Uh, I understand today that teams use a warrant officer for that function. Yes, sir. Okay, and Brian, what was your um, your specialty as a Green Beret? Uh, I started off as an 18 Charlie and then transitioned to an 18 Fox. So I, I went from an engineer, demolition sergeant, to an intel sergeant. So those are my two primary roles. Okay, so essentially you guys worked in a similar role set. Uh, even Very though, much. So at what point did it become the 18 series? That changed over time, right? Well, well, I I think that must have came about. I don't really know exactly. Maybe Brian knows, but when uh, special forces became a branch, and the or the army did some reorganization, because back in my day we were just qualification, no different than airborne or ranger. There was no guarantee you were going to stay in a special forces uh, unit just because you had the S the S on your MOS. But then when they reorganized and went from groups to battalions and gave, gave Special Forces its own branch insignia, et cetera, I would assume that's when the, the, S, the Special Forces MOSs were developed. I think that was about the same time officers and, and enlisted started going through classes together. Uh, Brian, do you know anything about this? I believe you're correct. I, I couldn't tell you right off the top of my head. Uh, it's, been, it's been quite a while on the, the history lessons, uh, sadly, <laughs> on, my, on my part. 
Uh, well, that's, I, that's fu- future, that, yeah. future history for me. So. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But I, 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 that's got to be about the mid mid eighties, I think. When when all I, of I believe that's what I was going to say. It was uh, yeah. I know it was in the eighties. Uh, I just couldn't confirm when because I know you know third group and the realignments and everything didn't happen until the nineties. Yeah. So uh, it's definitely in the eighties. All right. Cool. So, all right. So, you know, Brian served in Iraq and Afghanistan, worked closely with, uh, in Iraq, worked closely with the Iraqi Special Operations Forces, which uh, certain elements of the Green Berets helped stand up early on in the beginning of the Iraq war. Uh, This unit that they helped stood up ended up being very successful in working in some of the more dangerous areas of Iraq alongside uh, their Green Berets. And now Brian and, and Lauren Schofield are really running an awesome campaign to help contribute and give back to those guys who have been fighting against uh, Al-Qaeda in Iraq um, and some of these different militias and who are now, who transitioned into the fight against ISIS and are now leading the offensive to retake Iraq. And uh, it's it's really cool. And, and Brian, can you just talk about it briefly? Yeah, no problem. Uh, so basically... The idea came up from Lauren about he wanted to do something for the guys and just to show them that we still love them and uh, we wanted to be a part of them and, and go from there and let them know that even though we're not there, we still we still watch daily what's going on. Well, those conversations turn deeply into, okay, what's the so what, Lauren? What are we doing? Uh, I want to get involved and I definitely want to show the guys, but we need a, we need a, so what factor. And that was the, we're both boxes. So we both bouncing each other back and forth. Well, that led into the idea of, Hey, we can start this campaign and we can move forward with these products that we designed through the ICTF, the ISOFT guys that they like themselves and we can market that and sell that and then turn those funds back in to the uh, funding the families because we know there's no infrastructure set up in Iraq and uh, there's no SGLI for them just like the American soldiers get. So this is our way of being able to contribute without really crossing into any any black or gray areas. This is straight white. This is what we're doing. We're up front. And at the end of the day, what it was about was just that, letting our partnering forces know that we meant what we said, that we are here with you guys. Uh, the decision to leave was beyond us and we're not, we're not getting into the politics of it. It's just, it is what it is, but know that we were sincere when we said that we are brothers and that we care. And this, and a lot of this is rooted back into like, for me, my training for Mike, his actual experiences. Uh, for me, I remember going through the Q course and, and guys saying, you know, learning about the Montagnards and how we basically jumped ship on them. And it wasn't, or in all the pain that the Vietnam vets went through because of that brotherhood. And, you know, it, it put a bad taste in all of our mouths of, Hey, I don't want to experience that. And then it happened to us. We lived it just like Mike said earlier, history repeated itself. And now we're living that life of bailing on our, and of course we're not bailing, but that's how we feel that we've abandoned our brothers, even though we told them we'd be there. So that's what this is, is us being able to return back and say, hey, we got your back. Here's how we're going to do it. Right. And, and Mike, so you, you you said you worked with the Vietnamese Special Forces and then 
when you went into SOG, you worked with the Montagnards. Well, yeah, we still worked with the Vietnamese Special Forces, but my my team were Mountain Yards at that time. Uh, you know, the uh, of course the 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 Mountain Yards were not allowed in the regular military, so they couldn't be Special Forces or anything. They just could be mercenaries. Right, and and from you know a lot of the the books and the the literature that's available, uh, from what I've read is that Special Forces guys, uh, Mac V. Sog, you guys held the Montagnards in very high regard in terms of their abilities to fight and, and to track and that sort of thing, right? Oh, awesome. Yeah. They, they, of course they were analogous to our native Americans. Uh, uh, they were in, in normally very peaceful people, uh, matriarchal for the most part. Uh, but they were, were, uh, uh, awesome warriors. Uh, of course they hated the Vietnamese, which hated them. So that, that natural animosity worked in our favor. But the big thing was their loyalty. Once you develop that bond with the Mountain Yard, uh, you were accepted as a brother. And as an American, I knew uh, there was always a doubt with Vietnamese, but there was never a doubt with the Mountain Yard that that guy was always going to have my sex, six and, and would give up his life to, to help me, even though I was you know there temporarily. But, you know, it's it's just so almost strange in a way how there's so many similarities from Vietnam to Iraq uh, and even to Afghanistan, but, uh, well, well, I, I got, I got to tell you guys, uh, there's a, uh, history channel. Uh, it's about a two hour, uh, they did an embed with a team in Afghanistan, uh, that went out on med caps and, uh, they got hit and they lost some, some guys, and outside, the, diff- the only difference I saw outside of the organization and stuff, you know, of, of the, the new updated teams, was, was the equipment. The mission, right. the way they worked with the Indige, uh, the importance of, of building that bond with the villagers around, around their camp. It was, like, it was like Vietnam, but it didn't have jungles. <laughs> you know? right. so, so, so that has, that I can say is very consistent, yes. And also that working with different peoples within one system, you know, I can only assume, you know, knowing that, that, you know, the different tribal factors and whatever, uh, you've got a balancing act like we did with the Nungs, the Vietnamese and the, uh, mountain yards. Right. And I know, um, in Afghanistan, I know that, uh, the Green Berets were running a camps just like they were in Vietnam. Yes. 100%. I mean, one of the first thing we took, uh, that every 18 Charlie that I was aware of at the time, uh, took with us was the special forces, a camp manual from Vietnam. <laughs> and that's what, that's what, that's what we all use was that manual from Vietnam on as our standard for Afghanistan. Yep. You know, a, a, as you were talking, Brian, I, I was thinking we got a bigger thing going on with your mission than, than we did with the mountain yards. With the mountain yards, our war was over, and, and it was just following through with promises we had made, that bond that, that, that we had made with those people, and, and doing what we could to save them from the Vietnamese who, who uh, you know, uh, wiped them out with nerve gas. I mean, it was genocide over there. Uh, today, uh, as we learned in Vietnam, you can't win an ideological war with bombs and bullets. 
I mean, we killed a lot of Vietnamese. We dropped more ordnance in Vietnam than we did uh, in both theaters during World War II. Inclu- that includes, you know, the tonnage of the atomic bombs. Uh, but we, we lost ideolo- ideologically. Today, we're fighting an ideological war. We're not going to win this war with F-35s and cruise missiles. We're going to win it by winning heart. We're going to win it by winning hearts and minds. And what Brian is doing by going back there, one person at a time, and showing them that you know that that we still support them, uh, that that's that's still an important tactical or strategic thing that we should be doing today. Every citizen that can to building those little bonds with the moderates. Because it's the only way we're going to overcome the radicals, in in my belief. And, and Mike, I agree 100%, brother. And I'm glad that you brought that up. Because, I mean, that makes my mind run on everything that we're wanting to do with this project. And it's so much bigger than than just one group or the other, uh, what ISOF is doing. There's so many things we want to achieve with this. And one of the end games for us is just that, um, of changing or winning hearts and minds yes Uh, there's a there's a hundred topics that i could talk about just on that one comment of yours and and it warms my heart to hear that coming from the original generation for us and what i was raised on in sf was vietnam and and the reason that it's called uh camp row (laughs) and those those that that lineage it, it warms my heart but the things i'd like to talk about real quick on that brother is this is beyond that. Our our intentions, just so you, you understand a little bit more of where we want to go with this, we're using the ISOF as our test bed to make sure that we're on the right track. We're trying to get as many of the, the old school guys, the new school guy, every bit of the soft community on board with what we're doing to say, hey, we know there's a gap. Well, let's bridge that gap between when we decide to leave that area as the U.S. government and our what we're doing as individuals, how can we bridge that gap? And it's not about foreign policy. It's not about any of these other things other than I gave my word that I would have your back. And this is how I'm going to show you that that was heartfelt. That was sincere, that I love you. I fight with you. We are in this together. That's where we're wanting to go with this. And this is also why uh, I went into the humanitarian aid uh, route with myself and I own my own organization and we built villages in nepal and i fought human trafficking in libya and Hmm. all a lot of it on my own dollar because that was just it we're not going to win this war with bombs and munitions it's going to be hearts and minds it's going to be seeing that americans show up not in a sense of fighting in a sense of hey we took care of some bad guys brother little little guy or little girl but hey here's this doll here's me showing you that i love you this that love and and you get laughed at a lot and it's not from the the what blows my mind i'm kind of on a tangent and i apologize john but what blows my mind is i get laughed at a lot by civilians when i say we're not going to win this love or we're not going to win this war by love or uh bombs and munitions we're going to win it with love and they look at you like well, who, who's this guy <laughs> like no i'm serious uh that's the way we're gonna win and they just look at you like who are you and you don't win wars with love I'm not talking about winning the war. I'm talking about winning everything. We're, we're, we're going to make peace by love. And yes, what people don't understand is some of that love is embracing violence. The love is through some of the violent things that we have to do to get there. 
But at the end of the day, it's showing that that was out of love. That was, we are going to fight these ideologies by getting rid of the, the cancer, per se. Uh, and I hate to use that term because people take it sensitively, but I did lose my father to cancer, so whatever. <laughs> so, <laughs> but, so we get rid of these little things, but we, we, we win the rest of it with love. And that's why I went humanitarian aid route. And so you'd be pleased to know that we have plans, brother. And it's plans to go back to Vietnam. And, and this is not going to happen tomorrow. We know this is a long-term project. But with the foundation, with the World's My Country Foundation, we're going to team up with what me and Lauren are doing to get guys like yourselves, some of the older guys that still have that pain and that love to go back and help. And we know the government's done a lot for the Montagnards, but we want to go back to Vietnam itself and say, hey, this is the generational love that we have. This is this, My brothers fought this war with you guys, but that's not their war as well. This is all of us. We're all yes. in this together because they gave their word that means that I owe you my word. Mm -hmm. And that's just so what the SF community is, the special force community is all about. It's not about the guy that's on the ground. We all get it. We all believe in each other. And it's, it's bringing everything full circle in that love of brotherhood, that love and respect for each other. And it's what we're trying to do here. And so it's a huge picture. And I'm sorry to be on this tangent for a little, a little while. <laughs> no, it's but, all good, man. It's it's what when you said those comments, man, it just it warmed every bit of me to know that you see it, that this isn't about two guys going rogue trying to make a name for themselves. This is 100 percent about the brotherhood. And yes, that we would do. Yes. Yeah. So, it, you know, it's interesting because, uh, you know, off air, we we're talking and Brian had. Uh, brought up a video that was that had gone viral, you know, when he was in Iraq, of a uh, a uh, I'm not sure what unit unit he was with. Uh, it was it was an infantry unit, and the guy, I guess he was a captain, was like really berating the Iraqi police force, the local force, and and was kind of insulting them. And and then uh, you guys had some interesting comments on on that type of action. Go ahead, Mike. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, again, going back to Vietnam, it's it's a, it's a tough situation, and you know, uh, special forces are are specifically trained to win hearts and minds, to work with the people, and the regular troops aren't, and and that was a real problem in Vietnam. Uh, you know, th this incident on the YouTube video showed how uh, how by these Americans mistreating the police officer, that officer lost respect, uh, lost face, and and didn't really do a lot for, for the overall mission. Uh, I saw that so much in Vietnam with with the troops that, that didn't understand the guerrilla warfare nature, uh, uh, doing situations time and time again where I would say, hey, if that dude wasn't a VC this morning, he is now, he is this afternoon, uh, just because of the ignorance of, of the U.S. regular troops. And, and uh, I think I, I, I've seen example over example of that also uh, in, our, in our global war on terrorism in Iraq and, and Afghanistan. And it's just that it's this. I agree, Mike. And it's it's this total lack of connection between 
individuals and units, uh, partnering forces. And SF does that wholeheartedly because we embed with them. We, we share food with them. We break bread with them. And I use that example a lot when I'm uh, going forth with my teams on humanitarian aid is one of my first things I do is I break bread. What, yes. What, wherever I'm at, I have dinner with the, the leadership and I bring in the locals. And I'm like, look, this is who I am. I will not, not be upfront with you. Uh, I want to eat with you. I want to live with you. I want to learn with you. If uh, you're hungry, I'm hungry. Exactly. And that's the mentality. So when this video came up, I was actually in Afghanistan. When I first saw this video is right after a trip to Iraq. And I'm sitting in my office with my guys and they're laughing and they're like, Oh, you got to see this. And I watched the video and you know, like, Oh, that's awesome. And, you know, bragging about it. And they look at me and they're like, Hey, what's up, Brian? I don't, why, what's you have a different reaction. And I'm like, well, that's the, that's the freaking problem right there, man, is you don't get what's going on. And of course, you know, I, I had some support guys with me in my office at the time and a couple of even SF guys didn't get it. And I'm describing to them was I remember when this video came out and because I'd, uh, I'd heard about it statistically, uh, not the exact video, but I'd done some work with uh, Intel cell in Iraq and they're going over these these lessons learned. And one of the lessons learned was one of these videos came out. And I, I'm pretty sure looking back now, I can say confidently that that's the exact video that they were talking about was. What people don't understand from the regular military was when that video came out and this guy berated them, he didn't just berate them. He berated them like an American, completely being completely blind to cultural aspects. And the things that he said to him, if that would have been an American, it would have been acceptable. It would still have been degrading, but acceptable. But those were Muslims that their practice was Islam. So the things he said were not acceptable. And then it factually came out that the attacks in that area increased significantly due to that. And it's that complete lack of, of understanding and that disconnect is why we shoot ourselves in the foot and we still have all these issues uh, around the world is because we are the worst about understanding what's going on. We think we have the answers and there's a lot of guys that have the answers, but implementing those answers, we are not very good at. <laughs> I, I, I was very lucky on the, first flight to Vietnam, that 18-hour trip, trip, I read the book, The Ugly American, which is an old no novel about uh, our interactions in some uh, non-specific Southeast Asian country. And over and over again, it, per the title, it pointed out how Americans are ignorance and how we, you know, treat other, you know, we just trod on other, other people's cultures and, and, uh, it was it was enlightening for me, and I think it helped me a lot because I did see so much. I mean, in Vietnam, uh, just some 18-year-old chopper pilot, some warrant officer out on a lark buzzing a, a rice paddy, some old farmer out there on, a, on his water buffalo, stampedes the water buffalo, same kind of thing. That 18-year-old kids and his hot rod mentality from back in the States – does not realize that 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 old farmer may have been on the edge of helping the VC or helping the Americans. <laughs> Just and and that happens over and over again. And some of the some of the tragedies that happened with our lack of cultural understanding in the Middle East are are uh, well, it's caused a lot of lives, a lot of lives. It, it sure has, and a lot of that comes off of 
the complete lack of understanding. And we need to do a better better job of connecting that and bridging that gap on cultural awareness. And we, we the thing is, we've all taken a million classes on cultural awareness before deploying it. It, it doesn't get to the root of the problem of the yeah. actual disconnect. Well, that, that does about as much good as the classes uh, we got on, on our, our sexual behavior and uh, I assume what's happening today with sexual harassment seminars. <laughs> I don't, I, they just don't really do the job the way the military handles it. Yeah, I agree. Well, I was going to say is, you know, the problem is uh, when we're in these situations dealing with cultural awareness is we all too often forget that the individuals we're working with, it's not just about culture. They have to go home at the end of the day amongst the enemy. And we go home to our safe little bases surrounded by tons of security. Some, <laughs> uh, some of it we're out in the middle of nowhere and we, we have limited security, but the point being is these individuals, when we leave after our grueling eight months or whatever it is, that's mm -hmm. so hard for a lot of people to deal with. And I say that sarcastically. I know I'm going to catch crap for it, but these people live there. Their lives are there. They don't get to leave country and go home to a safe space. They're trying to fight for that safe space. And it's the respect that we do not have for that and that understanding that has caused a lot of the issues. And I think a lot of people forget that, that they're in their country. They don't have a place to go home to. Yeah, they are, yeah, well, in Vietnam, I mean, it was that same idea that we de-roast. They didn't. You know, they, they were there forever. Then, and, and some of the guys I worked with, I mean, the Vietnamese, they were fighting to get back to their homes in North Vietnam. And so, uh, so it's just that vested interest that they have that we didn't. And, and, and like, like you're saying very clearly that we had our secure bases, but they still had to go out and function in society with their underground and their bad stuff going on too with, 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 uh, their culture within their culture. Yeah. And you know, it's, it, and it isn't just like, you know, you guys are saying, oh, you know, it's bad for us to kind of you know, trot on their culture and not really understand it and just kind of go about things the way we do it for no reason. You know, there's there's evidence of the the method that you guys, you know, use doctrinally that it's it's been effective. And, you know, obviously in Vietnam, which is where the, our current special forces guys learned all of these kind of techniques and procedures. And uh, there was a book written by a special forces captain named Ronald Fry and the name of the book is Hammerhead six. And, um, they, they set up, uh, an a camp in Afghanistan early on in the war. And they were in a really, really bad area, uh, called the Peck Valley. And, and it was near this area where, you know, a lot of American troops were ambushed. Um, the lone survivor incident was, was in this, in, in the same area. And what they did was they set up an a camp uh, you know, they, they won the trust of the locals through, uh, you know, rebuilding the mosque, uh, bringing funding and, you know, doing med caps, that kind of thing. And then they were able to effectively remove the support of the people for the Taliban and, and some of the foreign fighters. And then they engaged them, you know, in direct action 
And they were very successful over, I don't know, like an eight-month period or something like that. But what ended up happening was they rotated out, another team came in, and I think the next group of Americans to come in was uh, you know, one of the large uh, infantry divisions. And then it was after that that the, the security really dropped in the area and things became very chaotic uh, for American forces there. Well, yeah, that we learned that in Vietnam. That uh, I mean, one of the reasons we had to develop our own uh, Mike uh, force was that the regular army, when one of our A teams with with our indige would get under attack, regular army wouldn't come out and help us because they just saw it as helping the Vietnamese. So we had to develop our own Mike force. Uh, that mission was taken away from the regular army initially and given to special forces in Southeast Asia of working with the indige. So, uh, you know, it, and, uh, we also had problems early in Vietnam when we were sending teams TDY from the first and the seventh, cause they'd go over and do six month tours. And it was that thing. They'd spend six months developing rapport with the, with the locals, with the village chiefs and whatever. And then they would derose out and, and, you know, a new team would come in. So when I was there with the fifth, course we just used like every other outfit you know you you everybody moved in and out there wasn't a, a good team cohesion but it was better for working with with our counterparts 100 agree hey so uh mike would you be able to share with the audience a, a story of of a, a time in vietnam either when you were in sog or uh on your a-team Oh, sure. <laughs> what, what kind of story you want, John? Um, <laughs> whatever you got, man. Let's, let's hear uh, helicopters and, and explosions. <laughs> Hel helicopters and explosions. Okay. okay. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Uh, uh, oh, man. Uh how, how, how about how about just how about something a surprise? I, I was I was there before Ted of '68, so it was kind of weird when I left when I left for Vietnam. The 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 uh, media was still supporting our effort, and when I got back uh, at the end of '68 uh, '68 uh, after Tet, uh, we were losing the war. Uh, but I, I got to be there during the transition, and uh, uh, my first enemy contact was with, uh, I was out um, on a patrol with 100, about 100 uh, CIDG, uh, another American, and we happened to walk into a battalion uh, headquarters that was uh, a battalion moving into uh, uh, attack Tam Key for Tet. Uh, that was a surprise. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I can the, imagine. This was with uh, Sog or this on, on, on the A-team? No, that, that's when I was on the A-team, yeah, because uh, when I got to the A-team uh, and I got briefed, and I, I, I got there, uh, the guy I replaced had already d so it was one of those deals that I was, you know, there's your desk, there's your map, and here's the combination to the safe. But uh, the VC force we had around uh, 10-foot was three women uh, they had one old French Grand rifle that they they had to they had to try to steal uh, American thirty caliber ammunition for and crimp it a little bit to get it to chamber in that old French Grand, 
And uh, I was there when the NVA started bringing in uh, all of the uh, really heavy-duty stuff, the real gas masks, uh, AKs, uh, and I got to go up what was called the Yellow Star Battalion, which was a demonstration battalion that was coming down uh, before Tet to show them what was coming down the trail and what they could do with it. So it, w it was an interesting time to be in Vietnam. I was there for the... Uh, for the buildup, for Westmoreland's buildup, and then I went back for the Vietnamization of the war, uh, 69-70, for when every, every GI right down to Private E1 knew it was a joke that the Vietnamese were going to be able to hold their own after we left. But let, 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 me, let me give you a, a cultural story, a little funny story. I, I just shared this with a person. Uh, you, you remember the old popcorn pop secret? You, you don't remember this stuff, Brian? Came in a pan? Oh, yeah, 100%. Yep. Okay, you remember that? In Nam, we used to get these care packages, right? And uh, one night in the team house, we're opening up some care packages, and a guy had a couple of pop secrets in there. So we had this little Vietnamese cook, called him Cookie, of course. He had fought with the Viet Minh. He was older in hell from North Vietnam. So uh, we gave this pop secret to Cookie and said, hey, you know, go back in the kitchen and pop us some popcorn. Of course, Cookie spoke no English. Uh, Cookie had one of those ar old army field stoves that used dripping gasoline. And so we're sitting there BS and playing cards or whatever. And we hear Cookie back there just cussing and swearing in Vietnamese. And uh, I went back there to, to see what was going on. Uh, you know the big deep stew pots the army uses, those big aluminum things that are about two feet deep. Uh, Cookie had Cookie had dumped the popcorn out of both containers and its oil and butter into that big stew pot, and had it over the fire and was down there with a spoon stirring it with that popcorn popping up with the oil, you know, burning his arm and everything, and he was just <laughs> cussing and swearing. And and I didn't catch all of it, but dumb, stupid American came up a lot. <laughs> so so we, we we assumed Cookie knew how to how to make popcorn, but he didn't know what it was all about. <laughs> That's great, man. I got but, one real quick on on the, on the cultural side, if you don't mind, John. No, go ahead. Or, go ahead. So uh, this is Afghanistan, and uh, this was 2010, I believe. Yeah, 2010 was on my last trip. And if, for those that follow my Instagram, they know a little bit more of the backstory on this. Well, I got uh, my element got picked up, or, you know, troops in contact seven times total that day. And we linked up with the northern element. So we spent the entire day fighting, and it was, it was a rough day. And the northern element was clearing IEDs. It was just one of those days that you just wish would end. And when it finally ended, you're like, wow, we're all still here. <laughs> so the follow-on, uh, which this story uh, is one of my favorite stories of all time. Um, and it really led me down the road that I'm on now. So the next day, part of our mission to, to end this, we were in Zari, which is uh, uh, next to Panjaway. And people that know Afghanistan and follow the war understand that it's a very, very crucial piece of terrain the taliban fight fiercely to keep this terrain and it's always been historically bad even for the russians so after we left zaru we we had to go to this uh village to do biometrics and um it's tentatively a bad area but it's right next to zari so you, you just never know 
so we're that morning we get out we're all still a little wired because you know we're up all night uh we were still in zari before from all the firefights so it was just one of those you know tensions are still high well after about three compounds of uh of getting the men out and running biometrics um you know one of the first things just like we always do the kids start crying so we're asking for their dads and you know you give them some lickies and chewies and you know they're happy <laughs> you know they're like oh dad'll be all right and they go carry off with their candy bar and <laughs> so we're going from i think it was the third compound and we're it's a very narrow area and it's a slight hill so you can't really see what's around the corners and what's coming up well out of nowhere it comes this man pushing a cart and of course you know we're immediately thinking like all right this dude's got a bomb this isn't good because he's not stopping and I have my Afghan National Army guys with me, and I'm trying to get them to get this guy to stop, and he won't stop. And I'm about to shoot this guy, and I'm just like, "Oh my God, this is this is happening! I don't know what's going on. You know, I don't want to do this. We're having a peaceful mission." Uh, finally, he stops, and come to find out, he was just panicked. He didn't know what to do. So I have my Afghan guys search the the cart that he's pushing, and it's an ice cream cart. And now I just I just realized like I almost shot a dude for ice cream. Great, it's gonna be a great story. So, uh, so I'm talking to the guy and he's like, "Hey, you know, I'm just I, I come here every Tuesday and this is what I'm doing." And so I look at my interpreter. I'm like, "Hey, tell this guy find out how much it's gonna be to buy all this ice cream." And so they're going back and forth, and you can tell he's really dumbfounded. And I'm like. So I finally get the price, and it was a few hundred dollars for all this ice cream. I'm like, whatever, we're going to buy it. But he has to come with us. So we went the rest of this village, and this guy is just pushing this cart along, and we come to the compound, and I'd have all the kids come out, and they get to pick whatever ice cream they want. <laughs> and uh, so it was actually turned into a really great mission, and it was a, a second-order effect that we didn't plan on, but it's just adapting and overcoming the situation. Well, what I didn't know until afterwards, it wasn't just what the village had learned that day. It was what the a the Afghan National Army had learned. And they saw what these Americans had done and that, you know, we took this almost tragic incident where we would have obviously this guy didn't have any weapons, he didn't have anything, but we were I, I was I feared for my life. Uh I, I really thought this guy had a bomb because they knew we were in the area, we had some radio chatter. Mm -hmm. I thought this was it. And I, yeah. you know, I almost I almost smoked this guy and but we didn't, and we turned that incident into this lesson learned. For and it was a beautiful story at the end of the day. And I'll never forget. It wasn't just the, the kids getting ice cream. I'll never forget as we ended that day because we had about ten compounds to search afterwards, and he ran out of ice cream. And he's like, "I don't can can I go?" And I'm like, "Well, yeah. You're not going to just push a cart around for no reason. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm not cruel. So yeah, go ahead and go about your day." And so I stopped him like, hey, man, just out of curiosity, how long would it have taken to sell all that ice cream? Because he was smiling the whole time. Yeah. And, like it would usually take about a week. So he just made a week's salary. Yeah. Hey, and half a day, actually. So I didn't think nothing of it. Well, we loaded up the trucks a couple hours later and we start heading back to Kandahar City. And sure as crap. I see this guy pushing his cart. He was heading back to Kandahar. He didn't go sit on his laurels or his moral. He, he, that dude was like, I sold all my ice cream. I'm going to go get more ice cream. I'm going to keep this going. And so it, it was just like, hey, I had a good week or I had a good day. I made up my week. So I stopped. He's like, hey, where are you going? He's like, hey, I'm going to get more ice cream. 
<laughs> he was like, it's going to be a good week, man. Yeah, really. <laughs> so it was just that the whole point of the story was it's, it's that compassion that we have of just even when we don't realize what we're doing. So I, I honestly used it for uh, I know that the kids like these things. I can make our lives easier going forward. But there was all those second order effects of showing that compassion of, look, we care. Uh, it, it is about making our lives easier. But at the same time, I couldn't imagine somebody coming in and, and taking my dad at a, a young age. And how can we make this better for everybody involved? And the ANA used that. The Afghan National Army used that. And it was, it was one of those bridging the gap moments where they're like, hey, we get it. We get that you get it. And we, we thank you for that. So, you know, that's what this whole Raise the Back Black campaign is for, is showing that, that we care. And not just us now, all of us, generationally, from day one, all the way back in Vietnam and before, we care. This is what we do. And when we say that we love you and that you're our brother, we mean that. So, uh, yeah, it's just one of those things, man, that... It's it's who we are as a as a unit as a regiment. It's the guys in SF. It, it's there's a lot of compassion that's unmatched. Well, I, you know, when you you were talking, Brian, I was going to say it sounds like your mission, as we were talking about, actually turned out more successful than if you sh- had shown the Afghan nationals your fighting prowess. I mean, they know you how to pull a trigger and how to kill people. But you showed them that you did have a heart, that you cared about the people, and 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 that's a big win. I, you know, if we could go out and do that day after day after day, uh, using diplomacy, using that love, and instead of just you know see see how many bodies we can stack up, I think th- I think we'd be a lot more successful. And you know, I applaud you for trying to carry this effort forward. Uh, you, you're going to do a lot of good for, for somebody somewhere. Uh, and I, and I, I hope we get the word out for you. The, Thank so you, Mike. The, and with that sentiment right there, I, my only question to you in this whole thing is, are me and Lauren, are we on the right track? Or are we doing the things that we should be doing to get everybody involved? And is our, our end game where we should be heading? Uh, you know, from, from, from what you can say, as far as what you're doing in your end game, it sounds like you're right on track. Uh, getting people involved is, is the hard play, you know, the hard thing. Uh, you know, it's, it's like, you know, you, you can have a product or anything else, build a website. You can have the greatest website in the world, but getting people to go to it and, and interact as, as I think, I think John probably knows is very difficult, you know, to get it, but you got to start small and it sounds like you're doing right. And, uh, you know, uh, and, and get your message out wherever you can. And, and that's what we're trying to do. And, and John, I'd like to take that time to, if you don't mind to, to address my next point. So it all actually tied in quite well was if you are listening to this, uh, what I really desperately want you to understand and it Lauren and I are on the exact same page when it comes to this is I want you to understand and we want you to understand deeply what you're supporting when you support race of black it's way beyond just some flags that we're sitting down it's way beyond ISOF uh it's way beyond just Iraq it's it's a generational 
connection that you're supporting and it's it's supporting where we want to go and it's supporting a brotherhood that desperately wants to show that we meant what we said and it's not just two guys that meant what they said it's a an entire brotherhood over decades that have kept our or that have given our word to people and had somewhat our ability to maintain that word uh hindered uh politically i won't get into but this is us finding a way to be able to keep those commitments and that's what you're supporting when you support raise the black it's way beyond some flags and some merchandise this is deep and it's pure this is not a gimmick this is gentlemen that truly love and have compassion for what we do and that's what we're trying to get out there yeah and and i i definitely encourage the audience to you know, contribute where you can and, and keep up. And, you know, if you, if you can't make any purchases and just, you know, share the, uh, share the episodes, share the website, uh, for Raise the Black and, and, and just help bring awareness to it because not only, you know, as not only as I saw from the ICTF, the Iraqi counterterrorism forces leading the fight against, uh, you know, such like a, uh, an evil like ISIS is that, you know, anyone who knows anything about the Middle East would know that it's very sectarian and it's very divided. And in Iraq, I mean, even after ISIS is defeated, they're going to have a bit of an issue there with, um, you know, the, the <laughs> a, bit, a bit of an issue. I like the way you put that, yeah. Sean. <laughs> so, um, but what's unique about this uh, ISOF, the Iraqi counterterrorism forces, is that they view themselves as Iraqis and not as Sunnis or not as Shias or not as Kurds. Yeah. And I think that's what, what really makes it special is that they're patriots for their country, you know? And it's it's similar to what what you see in America with, you know, people come from all different backgrounds, different uh, culture type of stuff. And, and then guys go overseas and they fight together uh, for the guy on the left and the right. And it's it's been able they replicated that with ISOF, and I think uh, it's very important to point that out because that's what's needed to combat extremism. And these guys uh, are, are are really like folk heroes in Iraq. I mean, they single handedly stopped ISIS from taking Baghdad, and uh, a lot of them died fighting in the, in the last ten years, and they're going to continue to die fighting, but. You know, they, they sign up and they, they do this job knowing what the risks are, but they know that it's worth uh, what the end game is, you know? Exactly. And and these there's no difference, like Lauren has stated in, in the last uh, podcast we were on, was there's no difference between the men that men and women that supported the Revolutionary War and us gaining America and what we stand for. There's no difference in that and what these men are are doing in ISOP. Right. And that's that's the exact same love they have. So if you can respect where we come from as America, then you can understand where these men are fighting for in Iraq. And it's about Iraq first. And that's the beauty. Beyond all of the success that ISOP has had, the beauty is the reason they are doing it. Not how they're doing it, why they're or uh, what they're doing. It's why they're doing it. And that's what just it's one of those warm and fuzzies that you can't describe because unless you were part of it, you will never fully understand how prideful we feel for being part of that. 
Now, of course, one one of the big things, Brian, that that you have to overcome with with the regular troops and the civilian population in general is this overwhelming Islamophobia we've got going on right now. I mean, I, I was in Columbus before I came here. Columbus, Ohio had a large Islamic population, and I had many, many veteran friends, younger ones from, from uh, you know, the, the 90s and, and the early uh, part of this century. And they all had that anti-Arab mentality, like the only good Arab was a dead one and no discrimination between, you know, the, the extremists and the ones that, that did not want to come to this country and impose Sharia law as if they could. Uh, and that scares me because of that general mentality, you know, in trying to reach out and help these people. And I agree. And John knows this. John, uh, we follow each other on Instagram. He's seen the exact post of, of my mentality on this yeah. exact. It's one of my biggest, biggest pet peeves as an individual uh, is, you know, the, one of the prime examples I gave on that subject was I had just as many uh, Muslims send me a Merry Christmas than I did Christians. So <laughs> let's over this whole religious aspect of things. Yes. There's no difference between uh, ISIS claiming Islam than Nazis claiming Christianity in the beginning of the war because Hitler went with Christianity first. You're right. And then when he realized Christianity did not fall into his values uh, and, and the Christians didn't follow along because it, it's not a Christian value, he separated from that to a higher being. There's no difference between that and what's going on with ISIS. ISIS Exa does not represent Islam. Hitler exactly. Represent Christians. KKK doesn't represent Christians. So... Well, well, you know, it, we've, we've got, we went through Christian terrorists in this country when we started yes. opening up abortion clinics and that we had bombings and shootings. Uh, uh, so yeah, it's, it's, it's not, it's not a philosophy. It's, it's taking a few parts of that philosophy and just going crazy with it and become an extremist. And most people, most people avoid that. You give, you, you give people a chance. They don't want to be an extremist. I don't think. Exactly. And, and one of the things that I take pride in as a, a personal individual is uh, just like literally last week, I'm sitting in, in my apartment down here in Austin and uh, my roommates are there. We're talking and somebody knocks on the door and we're both we're all like, you know, nobody ever knocks on our door because we, we don't get out much here in Austin. But uh, so we. Jason goes and answers the door, and who's there? My uh, Ethiopian friend from upstairs. <laughs> dinner, so they may, and they do this often. They make me dinner because all simply for the fact that every time I've seen them, I speak whatever Arabic that I do know. It's uh, I have a working ability, but I, I practice with them and I show them the respect that yes, they deserve as humans, not as Muslims, not as anything other than you're a you're a human and you deserve my respect because you've done nothing to disrespect me. Absolutely. It, it's across the community. I, I get fed quite often <laughs> here on this apartment complex because of that simple respect for humanity. And I wish that people would understand that. And that's one of the, the guiding principles that we have for raise the black and my, my humanitarian aid organization is just that it's about people helping people and it's about respecting people. And, if you can get past those little bitty beliefs and idiosyncrasies that keep us separated, we will make the right choices and we will move forward. But until you get over those mindsets, it'll never happen. 
And that's what I try to preach on a daily basis. Isn't religion, isn't any type of fundamentals other than just respect people. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And you know, it's, um, you see, sometimes you see, uh, you know, news media, they have commentators on or whatever. And, and on social media as well. And you'll see people say like, Oh, well, if, um, Muslims are so against what ISIS is doing. How come they're not speaking out about it? You know, but <laughs> the thing that I find so intriguing is that they do speak out about it. But one thing I'm kind of learning or have learned about people is that they they hear what they want to hear and they believe what they want to believe. And you, yes. you can, um, you know, there's been thousands of Muslims all around the world who have come together to unite against ISIS and and say what they're doing is not Islamic and and, what, and you know, they're just terrorists and thugs, you know, and that kind of thing. And, um, you know, one thing I just want to point out is the number one victim of these terrorist groups are Muslims, you know, and, and that's who they're fighting against. You know, Muslims are fighting against these people. They kill more of each other than they kill of us any, anywhere close to. Yeah, right. absolutely. But but this, the whole I thing, I mean, John, you have to look at this, the bigger picture of it, this global war on terror. The whole thing is kind of artificial to begin with. I'm sorry. I mean, I mean, I, I uh, we we went from Vietnam, which was supposed to be our last war that didn't have a, an end game. We were supposed to never get into another conflict unless we had a a way out. And now we are in a perpetual war on glo- on on terrorism. You know, a global war on terrorism. Uh, where we have the industrial, military, and congressional Congress doing everything they can to kind of keep it festering, as far as I can see. Uh, And I I don't think they really want this to come to an end. So uh, uh, this is going to be a problem for us for a very long time. Well, you know, it's interesting because the... um you know, if you really like, I brought up that book, um, Hammerhead Six, written by that special forces captain Ronald Fry, and they laid out step by step how to defeat these guys. Like it works, it's proven. There's no doubt about it. And part of the problem is, is that then you have, you know, the the, the battle space owners or commanders are are usually. Uh, guys from the the infantry and you know a, a guy who is you know one star general or whatever the ranking the proper ranking is for that type of job title he's not going to listen to a special forces captain and, right. you know it, it it no matter how how much this guy this special forces captain who was trained for years and years in unconventional warfare and he knows how to win this type of fight they're just not going to listen to him and uh, you know, and I've I've said it on social media and different posts. I've said it on podcasts. There are people who know how to win this war and how to how to end this uh, as as soon as it's possible because it takes a, a a number of years to fully win and and defeat an insurgency and that kind of thing. And it just seems like the people who know how to fight this type of war are not allowed to take the initiative as, as much as they could and, and kind of lead the way in, in, in so to speak. Uh, well, th- this has been the tradition with the military with special ops. I mean, 
Uh, in Vietnam, I worked under Westmoreland, and General Westmoreland knew how to work special ops. He used this very effectively. But then when he was pushed out and Abrams came in, we got a, you know, we got a, a, a tanker in there. Uh, all he wanted to do was be Patton and run his M60s into the Plain of Jars in, in Cambodia because he couldn't use them in the rice paddies and jungles and mountains of Southeast Asia. He didn't want to listen to anything about how to use special ops. And we had the, same, the very same thing when, when we knew that uh, Osama bin Laden was in uh, Afghanistan uh, the first uh, plan that was submitted to him was to go in there with a special ops team and take him out. And uh, that was rejected. For one thing, it wasn't flashy enough. I think Bush needed his war. And uh, according to the History Channel's 10 Ways to Kill Bin Laden, uh, we, we blew 10 regular, uh, regular army ways to get him. And how do we get him in the end? With a special ops team, the way they suggested to start with. So... Uh, so this is not new. I mean, reg regular army just doesn't understand special ops and, and probably never will. Uh, I think Brian will agree, uh, having, having served with guys that, that earned the beret, there's almost a genetic factor difference. I mean, there's almost a difference in DNA, uh, at least I think. Uh, yeah. The way the way, the way special ops guys think and, and approach problem solving and our commitment, I mean, the whole nine yards is more than just something you you pick up because you want to do this in high school type crap. Right. And that's just it. It's, it's a completely different dynamic in a human being that does what we do and what other individuals do. And to go on to the political side of things, which I hate doing, but I'll do it anyway, uh, when it comes to war and winning this war, is if you look at just propaganda alone – America has not set out to win a war since World War II. Uh, <laughs> I mean, just look at propaganda. If you yes. look at my yes. office, uh, I love my office. I'm very proud of my office at the house. And a lot of it's World War II uh, propaganda that I have on my wall. And one of my biggest pieces that I found in Massachusetts uh, is, is this soldier. Uh, he's dead on the beach. And he has uh, 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 an AT-4 type. Uh, he has a, a, rock, a bazooka, basically under his arm and it says what did you do for your freedom today and then it goes into this whole long diatribe of this guy died for your freedom and, and this and that and i'm not getting into the whole freedoms and i'm fighting for your freedom i won't get into that argument because we can go night and day or on that topic of are we really fighting for freedoms and this and that however what i am saying is we are not fighting to win uh you can see it just in propaganda that's allowed from the military and dod and doj at the time of that that propaganda that went out in every newspaper every magazine are you how do you want to can you not fight in the war save your grease we can use it to kill nazis and you know <laughs> mentality and nowadays yes. it's like you can't even say kill isis without somebody losing their mind because of violence so on that subject of it goes back to what i said earlier about there are many different ways to show love and i i right now i'm on that path of I'm showing you my loving hand and by providing things and showing you that I care. But at the same time, individuals like us in SF, we have no problem showing you the love through battle acts and that, that just hardcore, just ruthless hand to the enemy of freeing that individual. And Paul, the problem with what we're doing in, in the war right now is it's very simple. 
you cannot win a war that is both war and politics. War is war. <laughs> war is the answer when politics right. fails. Let right. me do what I need to do, and I will give you the insight. I will. And we've seen it. You can uh-huh. talk to any special was- force guy in Afghanistan that has seen us lose the war three times due to commands and politics, <laughs> rules and engagement, where the Taliban were. There's literal transmissions on radios from Mullah Omar, and I'm very proud of this from Third Special Forces Group, of us doing such bad things to the enemy and killing so many during Medusa that they were in pure panic. And these freaking commanders would not even answer the phone in Pakistan because they're like, dude, I don't want none of that, bro. You can have it. <laughs> yeah. What happens today? Politics comes in, and oh, we're going to hand it back over to NATO, who has a restricted rules of engagement, and the Taliban see that. And so at the end of the day, I agree. We don't want to win wars because maybe I won't get into why we don't want to win wars. I yeah. want to get into whole conspiracy theories and all this and all that. However, it's very apparent that we do not want to win because if you did want to win, we could do it. Yep. I, th- I think we, I think we have a couple of more podcasts going here, John. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I, I wanted to say, Brian, though, but, you know, I, I follow the same history, you know, and, and you know, with my degree degrees in, in communication, I worked a lot with the propaganda and and how we dehumanize the enemy through our propaganda, that sort of thing. So we're, you know, we're out there killing Krauts, not Germans and gooks, not not Koreans. Uh and and how we we have never had a real public support of a war. You know, Korea was the forgotten war, uh, and 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 Vietnam was. You know, we were the disparaged generation. But but what you're talking about started 9/11 when George Bush when he made his speech. It wasn't we all have to pull together and fight ISIS or fight terrorists. It was all right. We're just going to ignore them. We're going to lead normal lives, and we're not going to let them impact us at all. And that's what the Americans did. They just stopped worrying about it and let the troops have it. So now we got one percent of the American population protecting ninety-nine percent. Ninety-eight percent of them really just don't give a damn. They'll give some lip service, but they really don't care. Just don't bother them with the details. And 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 that's part of one of the second and third order effects uh, that we're trying to reach through raise the, the black campaign is to get you connected to what's going on. Yes. Uh, it doesn't mean you have to follow the news every day. And do no, this. it's just saying that, Hey, you know what? I supported those guys and you know what? Let's get behind them. Let's do this. America gave our word. Let's do this. And yes. Part of something outside of America. And it's, it's the American yeah. thing to do. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's, it's, it's not the primary goal by any means, but that is one of our goals is to get you connected, to get yes. you to feel what we're doing. And, and I, and I mean that in a, in a sincere sense of, I want you to feel connected to our brothers. And part of that was a great example of this, John is, uh, just like, la- I think it was Sunday, Saturday, Lauren calls me and says, Hey, did you see that tweet? And I'm like, no, man, I'm actually, I'm, spending some time with Ashley. I'm trying to, to not work right now so we can have a nice lunch. She's like, hey, you got to see this tweet. So, of course, I got on and I checked. And it was just this common Iraqi that t- retweeted what we're doing. And it's nobody big. There's nothing special about except for the simple fact that this guy felt the need and desire 
to support what we were doing. And it wasn't just a retweet. He didn't just retweet it and move out of his day. He went to the Facebook page and commented and he shared that. So this guy gets what we're doing. And it was that common of this is a civilian in, from Iraq that sees the pride that we're trying to instill. And man, that I cannot, I cannot put into terms how great both like i'm so glad lauren called me and was like you gotta see this because we didn't even we, <laughs> he was like why do i feel so good and i'm like dude it's because we're it's it's above us just like i said from the beginning brother this is way beyond what we're doing and, or what, what we started out to do this is beyond us and it was just that connection and i want that same feeling from americans i want that to say hey that's that success in Iraq was because of what America can achieve when we set forth to do great things. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, it's, it's just great to see that an Iraqi, a native Iraqi understands what you're doing and appreciates it, you know, and I, I think that's what kind of makes it special, you know? I agree, brother. Hey, so, you, you know, one thing I, I wanted to kind of talk to Mike a little bit about, uh, obviously, with the the connectivity of today's age, it is, uh, I guess, more possible to do what uh, Brian and Lauren are hoping to accomplish with their Raise the Black campaign. But I know some Special Forces guys did go back to Vietnam and kind of help out with the, the Montagnards, right? Uh, no, no. We at that time we didn't go back to Vietnam. Uh, we worked to get the mountain yards out of Vietnam because okay. uh, because they were using uh, sarin gas and just wiping them out. Uh, and uh, so you know, a totally different thing. We had to get those people out, and uh, that's how the communities were set up around Fort Bragg, where we have Save the Mountain uh, Yard project, and and that was try to try to just. Uh, enculturate them here in a community of their own. Of course, the other side of the problem that everybody forgets about is our Vietnamese allies over there. Uh, you know, the, the special forces that work closely with us, our interpreters. Uh, you know, during Tet of 68, when they went into... Uh, when they went into the cities, that's one of the things they attacked. Uh, even the prostitutes, they were nailing prostitutes to the walls uh, because, uh, you know, a, a girl had slept with an American. So uh, I, I fretted. I had a very close friend that was a, a captain. Uh, his name was Fott. And, uh, of course, I lost contact, him with, contact with him when I was medevaced. But I, 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 that was part of my... my, my uh, my survivor guilt was always wondering, you know, if he had been repatriated, if he had ended up in some camp, you know, or if he'd just been killed. And uh, uh, I did f reach closure in that uh, a couple of years after he died through other contacts. I found out that uh, he did make it to the States and uh, was a fisherman down in Louisiana for a while and ended up dying of, of stomach cancer in Orlando. So, so you know, but... What happened to my interpreter, that, the guy that cried when I left? You know, I don't know what happened to him. So, so that's kind of more like, like what Brian's handing, ha handling, except we didn't have the opportunity to go there and help them with the boat people or whatever. We had to try to get them over here. Yes, Mike. And, and that's what and it's, it's beautiful that we're, we all have the, the same line of thoughts on everything, even generationally. And like 
with Lauren and I, we we understand that, and that's why we uh, I, I posted many of uh, I posted a video, and we reached out to a lot of the uh, SF communities to get everybody involved, and it's to show that hey, we understand your pain because we feel it here. We have all the ability and technologies and everything nowadays. Let's do it. Let's let's yes. all. This isn't about just ISOF. This is about every one of us. We can all come together and reach back as far as we can possibly reach back and say, hey, we didn't forget. These guys never forgot. And trust me, we're here. And that, that's the beauty of this is knowing, I mean, I've until the beginning of this podcast, I hadn't, I've never met you. And it's seeing that all that we're still the same. And I love it, man. <laughs> it's a great connection. I, I agree, Brian. Sorry, I tend to get a little worked up. <laughs> yeah, it's all good, man. And I remember, I think I, I said it to you, Brian, af- after we stopped recording for the last episode, I was like, damn, like after we, you know, we had a discussion, I was like, yo, it would have been great if we could have had Mike Stall on for this. And um, yes, I'm so glad you made it happen. Yeah. Brother. Yeah, man. Um and you know, it, it, like I said, it's just interesting to see that the, even though there was a number of years in between both wars, how there's still a very um, deep connection to the guys that you were working with, even though it's in a different uh, region, uh, different terrain, that kind of thing. You know, John, it's almost a scientific formula. You know, going going back to to Donovan's starting special forces, and you know, the mission has always been uh, primarily, you know collecting intelligence and force multiplication. And when you're dealing with force multiplication, you're dealing with indige. It takes a certain formula to do that. I mean, you, you know, you can't do like, like Brian was talking, go in there like, like a Korean sergeant major and start beating them with your, your crop or whatever. You've got to be able to work with those people. And that takes a certain tool and and so it's it's really not surprising that that Brian and I are so aligned because the mission hasn't changed. Uh, it's just a different piece of material being worked on, but it's it still takes the same tool, the same techniques. I think exactly. Right. Yeah, and, and um, so Mike, so for the audience, uh, you know, I rolled out the article section on my website. Mike, yeah. Uh, he, we're working on, he sent me an article, we're working on getting it up. Uh, you know, he talks about some of his experiences and specifically, uh, the memory aspect of it. And, um, you know, Mike, over time, Mike will be writing. So you guys can look out for that. Uh, Mike also has a website, his own website where he posts a bunch of different articles and stuff like that. Mike, can you drop your website for the audience? Uh, yeah, my, my personal website where I've got a lot of my war stories up now, they're not, they, they read more like after action reports They're they're not fun to read, but as best I can remember some of the, my experiences in Vietnam and the other section that I think is important is my videos where I have, uh, lots of tribute, tribute videos to, uh, to Vietnam as well as the American soldier today. And, uh, I have, uh, the SOG video and, and some other SF stuff that, that kind of be kind of interesting historical. Uh, that's all on, on trickymisfit.com, uh, T-R-I-C-K-Y-M-I-S-F-I-T. 
by the way, Brian, that was the call sign of my A-team in Vietnam, A-102. We were tricky misfits. So I'm, no. maintaining, I'm maintaining the history of my A-team with that. I uh, love it, man. Yeah. I love it. And, and then I, I, I've started a, a little business, a little organization to try to preserve some of the history of Vietnam. And, and uh, you can find a link on that from Tricky Misfit, but it's at TrickyMisfitEnterprisesLLC.com. There's not much there now except my aspirations. Nice. Okay. And, I got you. Uh, all right, and, and Brian, can you drop uh, – so I know you guys recently um, – you, you guys got the Raise the Black social media handle running now? Yes, we have uh, we have the Instagram, the the Twitter, all raised to black. Uh, our website will be up in the next hopefully uh, week or so. And it's going to be raised the dot black will be the website. Uh, it'll have the mission and the ability to buy products off of. Uh, but all the Twitter, you know, the Twitter, the Instagram, and the Facebook is all raised to black. Okay, and for anyone who wants to make any purchases, they have to wait for the website to go up. Yes. Uh, we did a, uh, a dibs uh, movement on Instagram. So we owe out uh, for the people that did call dibs on the, on the death cards and uh, everything moving forward. We're going to respect that, uh, uh, that movement and we will incorporate that into the, the launch of the website. And then after that, it'll all be live. But until then, nothing has been uh, for sale. We're trying to make this uh, methodical. We're checking the quality of the products. Uh, getting everything set up because we want this to obviously we want to be successful and moving forward. Uh, so it'll be another, uh, we're looking at two weeks before the, the website launches with the product for sale. Awesome. So when that, when that goes live, you know, shoot me a text, man, and, and I'll, I'll help share it. And, um, I'll, I'll mention it on the podcast as well to kind of get the word out. Yeah. Yeah. You do Facebook, don't you, Brian? Oh yes. Yes. Well, yeah. Get me that on Facebook too, because, uh, I've, I've got a lot of connections with SF guys and special ops guys and, and a lot of groupies. You know, there are SF groupies out there, and I've got a collection of those. So, <laughs> so I'd, I'd, I'll definitely, uh, you know, I, I push some other things on my site that I, that I find worthy, and I'll definitely uh, give, you a, give you a good shout. Definitely. I appreciate it. And if you could, I, I'd ask that both of you support uh, my foundation as well, which is the World is My Country Foundation. And our website's uh, www. Uh, WIMCF World is My Country Foundation dot org, uh, and reason that we're tying it all full loop, we have both for profit and non profit to move forward, and we we got a lot of great things planned from tying the, bridging the gaps between Vietnam and raise the black to uh, have ongoing projects in Nepal and a, a bunch of other countries around the world, and you know it's basically just a a group of individuals that love helping people and. Uh, it's truly what we do in our spare time is maximizing our efforts and helping. And I, I'd love to see it grow because it is my passion. Yeah, definitely, oh. brother. And um, you, you, you've done humanitarian work already, right? Like in different countries? Yeah. Yes. Uh, so far, we've uh, successfully built villages in Nepal. We've built schools in Nepal. Uh, one of my board members is married to a wonderful Nepalese woman. Um, so after the 2015 earthquake... We responded within six days. I put together a team, linked up with some uh, SF individuals in country, um, got a lot of medical supplies so we could move forward. Uh, there's a whole another story. It was pretty, it was pretty cool to see how uh, everything comes full circle and how small the world really is. Uh, but so we've done 
following the medical supplies and uh, medical aid, we built schools and uh, villages, entire villages in Nepal. And um, we've worked anti-human trafficking in Libya. Uh, I supported uh, supplies for the Yemenis fleeing the Houthis in uh, Yemen to Oman. I did a trip down there. So we have really big goals. Uh, right now I'm working on a project that we're re I bought a, I bought a 72 Winnebago for 500 bucks. Uh, <laughs> it run uh, she runs, she's, I, I'm in love with this thing. Uh, me and some of my friends are rebuilding it and we've already started linking up with organizations all the way from Texas to Argentina. And that's what we're going to do is once it's rebuilt, we're just going to drive all the way down to Argentina, awesome. helping as many individuals as we can along the way. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome, man. Um, yeah, so, you know, like I said before, I, I'd encourage the audience, check out Mike on his website, uh, com. Check out Brian. Uh, they're doing amazing things. Check out his humani humani humanitarian aid organization and check out Raise the Black. And uh, when the website goes live, I'll make an announcement on the podcast and I'll also share it on social media. So just be on the lookout for that. And, um, you know, just remember, as we're sitting here podcasting, uh, the ISOFT guys and, and some of the other groups out there in Iraq are, are fighting against ISIS and, and successfully, I would add. And, um, and you know, and everyone's just trying to do the best that they can. Great insight from these guys. When they talk about knowing the way to win this uh, ideological war against these radical extremists, uh, it's a shame that the leadership isn't following that, that blueprint because it's worked before. And uh, this is something that the special forces specifically have been fighting since Vietnam. I mean, these guys have mastered this kind of unconventional warfare where it's bombs and bullets, but it's also getting into the minds of people and knowing what works and what doesn't work. And for these insurgents and these terrorists to be effective, they they need support from the local population. And what one of the, the specialties of these Green Berets is to take away that support uh, through different means of direct action, which is the cool guy stuff, and and then the other stuff, which is helping rebuild the villages, um, running medical clinics, and, and that kind of thing, you know? Building a school. And, and these things work. And the thing is, is these guys are trained for this. So this is their job. But then you have um, conventional units who are not trained for these type of jobs. And it's not that they aren't capable units or capable individuals. They are. But what they are trained for is direct action. And they're very good at that. But what you need is people who are, are trained for these type of, you know, hearts and minds kind of operations. I, I mean, you can't have guys running these operations who think that they're wasting their time. Otherwise, it's not going to be done to the uh, and have the maximum effect. So I hope you guys enjoyed it. Uh, do check out Brian on social media and um, 
keep up with Race of Black. Their website will be up soon. Uh, the flags that they have made are really cool. They got some other stuff in the works. It's all good stuff. Uh, they wouldn't put out anything if it wasn't quality. And uh, and like I said earlier, Mike Stahl will be writing articles uh, for my website. And be on the lookout for that. Um, you know, as always, anytime an article goes up, it'll be on the social media. You can check it out. It's on the website as well. So with that, we'll close out this podcast. My website is www.globalrecon.net. My Instagram account is IG Recon. The second account is Black Ops Matter. The third account, which I, I help manage, is my friend Chantel's account, uh, Chantel Taylor's account, mission underscore critical. I'm on Twitter at IG Recon. I'm on LinkedIn. Just search Global Recon. Be sure to leave us a review on iTunes. Subscribe to us on iTunes. Download the episodes. If you don't have access to an Apple device, check us out on SoundCloud. Just search Global Recon Podcast. Uh, same thing. Leave us a review. Download the episodes. Share it with your friends and family. And that way, we can continue to bring you guys high-quality content, you know, interviews and discussions with, um, you know, the, the people who've been there done that. And uh, we'll see you guys in a couple of days with another episode. Peace.